0: Tonight, Kentucky made a choice.
1: A choice not to move to the right or to the left, but to move forward for every single family.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ballot to Talk About. What you've just heard is Governor Andy Bashir declaring victory after winning a second term as the Governor of Kentucky. And in this week's episode, we'll be looking at last Tuesday's series of elections across the United States and asking the big question, how did a Democrat win in a state that voted for Donald Trump by over 20 points? It's Sunday, the 12th of November, 2023.
1: I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide,
0: Unify.
1: Not now. I not am a in. fighter and not a quitter. It's time for a change in this country, my friends—a real change. Let's keep moving. <clears throat> Slava <Slovenia> Ukraini!
0: Joining me on the other side of the world, as always, is my co-host Churn. How's everything going, Churn? Looking forward to diving into the US a little bit more this week.
1: It feels very strange because uh, for listeners' benefit, Sam and I often have conversations about politics before we start actually recording the podcast. And I kind of feel like we've always been talking about the US in our text messages and before we actually press record. So this is feeling somewhat a little bit strange, doesn't it? The fact we're actually recording a podcast about the USA.
0: Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, when we were talking at the start of this year, I remember that We were trying to plan out, Okay, how do we approach the US primary season on this podcast? We weren't even really talking about these elections. We were talking about how do we plan a primary season? And as the years gone on, we've realized that we almost don't need to do that because what we're about to experience, I believe, and that's one of the reasons we probably won't be touching on it much this podcast at all, is a complete non-event of a primary season because I think it's almost certain now, unless something dramatic happens, that we're getting a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, uh, which frees us up to talk about all the interesting things going on further down the ballot. So I'm looking forward to unpacking a few more of the nuances at state level, some of the success stories of moderate candidates in red or blue states, and um, talking about some of the more policy issues going on further down the ballot so i think that's interesting
1: and what wasn't a surprise this year is as we predicted at the start of the year and we were wondering how are we going to incorporate this in our largely election focused podcast is as we predicted where we talked about in january kevin mccarthy is no longer speaker of the house i think he and he lasted both longer than me and sam thought he might last to be honest um and i'm sure both of both me from me and sam's perspective Sam, did you have to Google who Mike Johnson was?
0: Yes, I did. And actually, I think Susan Collins did as well. I saw her, I think I put that on our Twitter account where Susan, sorry, X account, um, where Susan Collins had said that when asked, are you prepared to work with Mike Johnson on certain issues if they send them across to the Senate? And she said, well, I'm gonna have to Google what his policy positions are, which I thought was absolutely priceless for a member of the Republican
1: caucus in Congress. But that's not what our podcast would be focusing about on, Sam, because really, we'll be talking about events that took place last last Tuesday and a little bit beforehand, aren't we?
0: Yeah, so we've had quite a few electoral events going on in the US over the last few weeks. We've had three gubernatorial elections. We've had midterm elections for the state legislatures in New Jersey and Virginia. We've had a pair of ballot initiatives across Ohio, and we'll be unpacking all of this. And then, just as a little teaser, at the end, Chern and I have actually prepared a couple of questions to ask each other, quiz questions that we've not seen. Neither of us have seen the questions that the other ones prepared. So if you do stay on to listen to the end of this episode, which I encourage you to do always, um, you'll be hearing whether Chern and I do have, um can read each other's minds on US politics questions and just how good our general knowledge is. But... I hope neither of us are too embarrassed when we get to the end of this podcast.
1: Well, or how much of a nerd we are, basically, of how much we have read up over this year, because it's largely going to be this quiz. It's largely going to be focused on events that took place in 2023. Who knows? One fun, one of my questions could be one of your fun facts that you bring up today. But let's start with some of the three gubernatorial races, because I think they, they are very interesting because They were all in states that Donald Trump won by double digits in 2020. And we saw three, I would say, very different set of outcomes. I think the headline result was in Kentucky, because what we saw was Democrat Governor Andy Beshear re-elected with 52.5% of the vote. And he beat Attorney General Daniel Cameron, who was seen as a rising star. He's a protege of Mitch McConnell, um, who got 47.5% of the vote. In Louisiana was the other extreme where we saw a landslide by the Republican, the Attorney General there, Jeff Landry, was elected in a landslide, winning a majority in the first round with 51.6% of the vote, therefore avoiding the need for a runoff. In the jungle primary, he beat former trans- State Transport Secretary Sean Wilson, who was a Democrat, who got 25.9% of the vote. And this is a flip for the Republicans as the outgoing Democrat, John Bell Edwards is term-limited, having served two four-year terms. And finally, in Mississippi, next door, uh, Republican Governor Tate Reeves won re-election with 51.5% of the vote to Democrat Brandon Priestley with 47.1% of the vote, which is a slightly smaller margin than when he was first elected in 2019. Now, Sam, let's focus on these three governor elections, because they all took place in red states that Donald Trump won by over double digits um, in 2020. But what was your reaction to these three races?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I have a varying reaction to all of them. And in all of them, in some ways, it's less of a surprise to for any of the results. But I am going to slightly um, clarify the pronunciation of the Democrat candidate in Mississippi, because he's actually Brandon Presley, and he's the second cousin of Elvis Presley. So there is a common, um, common name in that part of America, uh, which I thought was an interesting part of this. But yeah, I don't think I was particularly surprised with any of these results. I mean, Democrat Governor Andy Beshear in Kentucky. Yes, it's a state that Donald Trump won by 20 points, but you have to view this in the context of wider approval ratings, because Andy Bashir is not only very popular in Kentucky, he actually is one of the most popular governors across America. I think he was ranked in the July approval ratings governor scores as the fourth most popular governor in the US and the most popular Democratic governor. So. Is it a particular surprise that a popular incumbent governor was re-elected? Not really, Um, even if it is within a state where his party doesn't traditionally do particularly well. And actually, he's facing two Republican-held chambers of the legislative, quite commandingly Republican-held chambers of the legislative as well. Then we've got Louisiana. Not particularly a surprise. I mean, John Bel Edwards was a popular democrat but he was also a unique democrat because he was quite conservative um and that was not necessarily the case for the candidate they put up this time and i in fact read i know we're going to talk a little bit about their failings in louisiana but i saw that the democrats turnout was appalling um in new orleans and actually the democrats didn't even contest a majority of the districts on the state legislative level so It was really a a pretty dismal result for the Democrats in Louisiana, but at the same time, is it a surprise? Not particularly. And then we've got Mississippi. There was a lot of Democratic energy around Mississippi heading into the elections on Tuesday. I think some Democrats thought that they had a chance, especially given the scandal surrounding Tate Reeves, the incumbent governor. But as we've talked about with Kentucky, it's very difficult to oust an incumbent and it's particularly very difficult to oust an incumbent in a state that the republican party wins pretty much every cycle both state legislative and presidential so there were there were very difficult odds for brandon presley to try and overturn in mississippi so i'm not that surprised that in the end tate reeves won by nearly five points i think i am surprised that it was only five points. I think that should be, shouldn't be understated that Bandon-Presley did actually draw this race quite close. But in the end, I think it's not a surprise
1: that Tate Reeves came out on top. What do you think, Churn? I think I would describe... I think Andy Bishop's win was expected. I don't think, any you know, looking at the polls, it was what was expected. But I think just seeing the result, the fact that he did win by five points... I think considering the overall polarization of American politics, I think that result is quite remarkable despite the fact that everyone predicted it. So I think that in that way, it is surprising. Mississippi, I think was the least surprising out of them. The Democrats, particularly in the Deep South, politics is often very racially divided in particular in in the state like Mississippi. And the reality is the fact is that the white the. Conservative whites make up the majority of the electorate in Mississippi. And that was just a fun un, a fundamental fact that Brandon Presley could not o- overcome. So I don't think it was particularly um surprising. But with Louisiana, my surprise is the fact that whilst I expected the Republicans to win, a margin like that and to avoid a runoff, I think was. Was amazing. That was something that surprised me. I genuinely did not expect that. I think in the modern era, um, I was I was reading the stat that Jeff Landry has become the first non-incumbent governor, uh, to avoid a runoff since Bobby Jindal in two thousand and seven, and to show you that, you know, what a lot particularly in Louisiana and to a lesser extent Mississippi, Jeff Landry has only become the fourth Republican governor since Reconstruction. So. This is really an epic fail by the state Democratic Party in in Louisiana, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think the the fact that the Democrats did so poorly in this election is disappointing, especially coming off the back of an incumbent Democratic governor. But I think there are a few things that you need to look beyond that, which is that Bobby Jindal, the last Republican governor of Louisiana, won without a runoff twice, both in two thousand seven and two thousand eleven. Trump won Kentucky three years ago by 26 points, Um, and also Jeff Landry has been quite a prominent statewide figure picking national fights with Joe Biden, so he's um, overseen as a state attorney general a near-total abortion ban with no exceptions for rape and incest, Um, he's been responsible for banning gender-affirming medical care. And he's been clashing with the Biden administration, both on limiting oil and gas production, as well as the vaccine mandate in the last few years as well. So Jeff Landry has been quite a prominent Republican figure in the state. So he almost, I think, to a certain extent, is treated a bit like the incumbent in this race versus a relatively unknown figure in Sean Wilson. So I think that's an interesting part of this. Um but as, as I'm sure we'll come on to talk about in a little bit, one of the things underscoring all of these elections we'll talk about today is that there seems to be an element of the pro-choice, pro-life debate and typically pro-choice candidates or issues winning out in this cycle. But that doesn't seem to have been the case in Louisiana. So I think that's an interesting facet of all of this.
1: Or you could argue Mississippi as well, well because yeah, both Brandon Priestley and Tate Reeves are pro-life. Um, I think we we talked about other reasons why the Democrats did so badly. Is and you referenced that um turnout statewide was thirty six percent, and in the Orleans Parish, which is the which is where there is a particularly a lot the biggest hub of Democratic voters and particularly Black Louisianas, it was twenty seven point three percent, down by more than eleven percent from the twenty nineteen gubernatorial primary. So. In 2019, I think what we saw there was that Orleans Parish was on track or keeping on track with the, um, with the turnout statewide, but there was complete collapse in turnout, and we saw the impact of that in these results, isn't it? And the other thing that I think will come, is a recurrent theme when we talk about particularly Kentucky, was um, just 10 days before the jungle primary was held, Jeff Landry reported $4.5 million in terms of cash on hand. How much is Sean Wilson report, Sam? Do you know? I don't. 700,000. So you just can't win in that environment, can you? No, no.
0: But I think when we talk about money um, in Virginia, I think glen Youngkin made this one of the most expensive state legislative races in history um, and still didn't pull off gaining the trifactor. So I don't think cash on hand is everything.
1: No, I I don't think it's everything, but I certainly think the Democrats have a better, you know, and more money to spend on a turnout operation. They could have forced Jeff Landry into a runoff, isn't it? I
0: I mean, I think there's a certain element of this reading about it, both in the legislative races and the gubernatorial races, that I think the Democrats kind of gave up on Louisiana and didn't put any energy into it at all. I think that's that's what certainly is read from it, and I think whatever resources they'd reserved for this cycle, they seem to have poured into two places. One, Kentucky, getting Andy Bashir re-elected, and two, into Virginia to stop the trifecta of Grand Youngkin. I think that seems to be the Democrats' focus of 2023.
1: Well, what I did hear as well is that there's a lot of unhappiness over the state party chair, and there's been calls for her resignation in the wake of this a debacle amongst Louisiana Democrats as well. So it could be also a state party management issue that we cannot ignore as well. So, um, And the other thing I think, whilst we have been talking about the Democrats, is the Republicans also got their act together I think in this election cycle, because what we did see is that the endorsements for Jeff Landry came from Steve Scalise, Donald Trump, the Trump family all endorsed him, much to the chagrin of the other high-profile Republicans who are running in the jungle primary are the statewide officials who felt that the Republican Party was akin to communism in the sense of trying to crown a winner so early along in the process. That's exactly what the lieutenant governor said. It looks more like communist China than Louisiana we know and love. And I think by declaring and picking a winner was that I think they wanted to send a clear message about the fact that they want this to be a thumping after the fact that a Democrat could get elected the last two rounds, didn't they?
0: I think that's I think that's absolutely right, and it's and it certainly worked for them in this um in this jungle primary. Chen, let's talk about an area where the Democrats did do well, which is in Kentucky with Andy Bashir. What? How do you think Andy Bashir won? This it not just in terms of his. Um, popularity in the states but do you think there's anything else at play in kentucky
1: there were two factors i would say that fueled his victory the first is something that i referenced in louisiana where the money advantage was with the republicans in kentucky it was with the democrats because andy Beshear had 40 spent 45 million on his campaign while daniel cameron spent 26 million so you're looking at a near two to one difference in terms of money that was spent and it is crucial in a state with 10 separate media markets. So Kentucky is a very difficult state. If you want to get your message across, you have 10 media markets. I think that's where your advantage is. And Which for a state with a relatively
0: small population is quite large. It's like the amount of cash you need to spend to reach
1: per person, I think is one of the highest in the US. It is. It is exactly right. And money is such a big factor in this. And... And what is the impact of this is that you got to be able to spend more on your get-out-the-vote operation. So we talked about Orleans Parish in Louisiana. Well, uh, some analysis I saw showed that Andy Basia managed to turn out 79% of Biden voters in 2020, whilst only 53% of Trump voters voted for Daniel Cameron in 2023. So I think many Trump voters simply sat the race out or were just not bothered or didn't have the... Resources to be able to get to the polls. Now, we could argue that in an off year environment, particularly the Democrats' new base of support among high education, high propensity voters, more high education voters made them college educated voters made them more likely to turn out. You can't deny, Sam, that the money made a big difference, isn't it, in this matter? And that differential was something that just Daniel Cameron couldn't overcome, isn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's also worth adding the context in. I saw um, I was reading a 2018 report of incumbency in governor races in the U.S. since World War II, and I saw that actually Kentucky was one of the highest percentage win races rates of incumbent governors at 75%, and there was only one state across America that was less than 50%, which was Alaska. So incumbent governors tend to win re-election races. And in Kentucky, they pretty much always win re-election races. So I thought that was a particularly fascinating part of this. And you see in Kentucky, actually, I think in the last, I think it's seven cycles, there's been Democrat winning incumbency, one term Republican, Democrat winning incumbency, one term Republican, and now again, Democrat winning incumbency. So... Uh, Maybe that says something about what we're about to get in 2027. But on the financial point, I think you're absolutely right. And we talk a lot in the US about how much money plays a role in just trying to reach voters and juice your turnout. And clearly, Andy Beshear was able to capture that as well. I did see an interesting stat on turnout, particularly in areas affected by the flooding and tornadoes of the last few years that Kentucky has been experiencing. And actually, turnout was quite high and in favour of Andy Bashir in areas that were affected by um, the tornadoes and by the flooding. Even counties in that area that typically trend Republican were voting Republican still this time. But the number of votes for Andy Bashir went up. And that's the kind of difference that it made in why his vi- victory margin four years ago was... 0.4%, this time nearly 5%. So I think his response to those natural disasters also seem to play a role here, both in his approval rating and his ability to win this election.
1: Well, I can tell you that Andy Bashir won more votes than a President Joe Biden, so this isn't a presidential election, in 87 out of a Kentucky's 120 counties, despite overall turnout being 63% of 2020 levels. So he's able to squeeze... More of the Democrat, the, the more voters to vote for him than Joe Biden did three years ago, and I and you talked about the areas. I think in Eastern Kentucky where a lot of these areas were devastated by tornadoes and natural disasters. Don't forget, Sam. Eastern Kentucky is ancestral Democratic areas. This is along the. Appalachian mountain range which is like West Virginia home of coal country you're looking at and central working-class populist Democrats and you can't deny that Andy Beshear did very well in some of these counties um so just give you some three counties to look at uh Breathitt County in 2020 voted Republican by 52 points Andy Beshear won it by 22 points in Perry County it voted Republican by 54 points Andy Bashir won it by 14 points. And this is despite the fact that he lost the county to Matt Bevin four years ago. And in Letcher County, and just give you another example, in 2020, it voted Republican by 60 points. Andy Bashir won it by four points, despite losing it by eight points four years ago. So four years ago, when he eked out a 0.4% victory, hmm. what we saw there was an a comfortable win by the Republican governor. But... Four years later, four points. That's a pretty comfortable victory. So quite amazing that this all-democratic vote mm-hmm. was reactivated at this election. And I wonder, Sam, did the Bashir name have anything to do with it?
0: Quite possibly. Quite possibly, because it is a well-known dynastic name in Kentucky. Both him and his father now have been two-term governors of Kentucky. So it is becoming a bit of a Kentucky dynasty there. But. Sure, and I think we have to also talk about, and this could be a nice seg onto Ohio, talk about the abortion issue because this was quite significant in the Kentucky race. You had um, Daniel Cameron was a staunch, vehemently pro-life candidate backing the statewide abortion ban and also, as Attorney General, was criticised by the family of Breonna Taylor for presiding over the lack of criminal charges for her death as another key Democratic turnout juicer option. But um, the abortion issue, Andy Beshear was pro-choice. He vetoed a law in 2022 trying to make abortions post-15 weeks illegal. That was overturned by the state legislature. And then we saw in November 2022, the ballot measure in Kentucky defeated um, that would have said that the Constitution does not protect the legal right to abortion. So even in these heavily republican voting states on the presidential level pro-choice issues seem to carry candidates over the line and i think that can't be understated as one of the reasons why andy Bashir was able to keep turnout high the turnout he had to keep high in democratic areas to win this re-election um was high and i think that issue and that dividing line between him and daniel
1: cameron played a big role here well i think just on that last i, I largely agree with what you said but you, I think, where this election made the difference was in the suburbs because Andy Beshear increases margin by nearly six percentage points in suburban areas compared to just four and a half in urban and rural pre- precincts. But this is where the abortion issue plays most strongly against pro-life candidates. It's in the suburbs, particularly suburban women have gone off the Republican and pro-life candidates and have swung quite heavily behind the Democrats. So, I think it's not the core democratic areas but it's those sub- suburbs areas and you also need to if you look at the map of kentucky sam um you could see that it's uh so the lexington which is the lexington area of kentucky and frankfurt which is the two big cities you saw the surrounding areas that's very much the suburbs areas but you also if you look at the map of kentucky and bashir won two counties in northern kentucky did you I'm not sure if you saw that um, he won those two counties in northern Kentucky. Now, that that media, those two counties fall under the Cincinnati media market, and this is uh, where and what was happening in Ohio. We saw an abortion it should come play its race there. So I I wonder if the improved performance of the Democrat in those two northern Kentucky counties, which gave Andy Beshear the victory last time around but solidify and ensure that he won re-election this time around. I think you can mm. clearly see that in the performance of those three counties in the north of Kentucky. That's
0: fascinating. Um, I hadn't actually seen that. That's really interesting. But yeah, l- let's talk about Ohio because we had a pair of ballot initiatives in Ohio. Issue one, issue two. Issue two first was about legalising cannabis, which passed 57% to 43%. And bizarrely, I did hear being discussed on um, Pod Save America, they were talking about how this issue was actually sort of tagged on to this um, ballot initiative. It was never expected to win. Campaigners didn't even expect it to get onto the ballot paper. And it was actually pulled across the line by issue one, the abortion initiative, which I thought really fascinating. Um, Yeah, and as I said, issue one was trying to get a constitutional right to abortion in Ohio, um, which also passed 57% to 43%, nearly identical result to a referendum in August, which was largely a proxy race on abortion as well to do with the ability of the state and state state legislatures to pass constitutional amendments. So, Chen, we maybe could have predicted that this would have gone this way when you look at the result in August, but still it's quite surprising for a state as increasingly red as Ohio to pass this um, abortion ballot initiative, but then it shouldn't be hugely surprising because we had six abortion-related ballot initiatives in 2022, several of which were in Republican states, all of which went in a pro-choice direction. So is it just
1: continuing that trend? Well, we talk about issue two riding right and the coattails. Well, I can tell you, Sam, that issue one, which was the abortion uh, issue, was passed by fifty-six. The yes side won by fifty-six point six percent. Um, in issue two on the marijuana case, was fifty-six point nine seven percent. So, actually, pot seems to be more popular than uh. Then abortion, which I think is very interesting. And I think it is worth looking, actually, about how... I mean, first of all, the correlation is remarkable. Probably a lot of people who voted for the abortion issue. Whilst the headline figure seems the same, dig underneath that, it's an interesting story. Issue two, the marijuana question, won more counties, particularly in the centre of the southern Ohio, Whereas issue one won less counties, but the depth of support for issue one was often relatively bigger for issue two. So in other words, issue one on abortion in areas that voted for uh, yes to enshrine the right to abortion in the state constitution, they often often supported it by bigger margins than the yes vote to legalize marijuana. So, in other words, mar- the issue of marijuana had more appeal throughout the state geographically, but issue one had more concentrated support. So I think that's an interesting distinction between that. Why is that the case? Well, in the marijuana case, first of all, there were some Republican House members uh, to the con- Congressional House members who supported the yes side, such as Representative David Joyce, for example. So I think that helped with his crossover appeal. Um. Uh, and what I did read is that a lot of rural counties in south southern to south-central Ohio, which does form part of the Appalachia region we talked about, that swung behind the democratic these are central democratic areas. Marijuana, according to the crystal ball uh, by University of Virginia, was viewed as an economic issue rather than a social issue. And the opportunity for for more economic development I think that what's helped them win more votes in some of these areas, which I thought was really interesting. What do you think, Sam?
0: Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't really thought too much about issue two because of how much issue one was um, projected in the media, both on the state side in Ohio, but also nationally. I think it's one of the biggest stories, actually, of the 2023
1: cycle. Um, But that is a really interesting story about issue two. And on issue one, Sam, We've seen this again, you know, as a, we saw this in August, was basically a test run for what happened here. But it just seems to me that in red states, the pro-life side, after winning probably the cherished moment, which is the abolishment of Roe v Wade, politically, they seem to have lost their way though, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the reality of the situation is, which we we knew before Dobbs v Jackson overturned Roe v Wade, is that there is a majority support pretty consistently across America for the for the constitutional right to abortion it hovers between 55 to 60% across the country and we've seen time and time again now that majority project itself in opinion in actual tangible democratic exercises in completely diverse areas you've got i mean last year we had ballot initiatives in California and Vermont, where we expect uh, the Democratic side of the issue to do particularly well. We had one in Michigan um, that was the, sort of your swing state representative. And then you had ballot measures in Kansas, Kentucky, and Montana, which are staunchly Republican places. And in Kentucky and Montana, it was passing by like 52.5%, but crucially, it was still a majority. And I think that's the... That's the way we thought about it before Roe v. Word was overturned. So it shouldn't be a huge surprise that that's the kind of percentages you're getting in these democratic exercises. One thing we do, however, see is that it's a huge motivator for the liberal side of the argument, the liberal pro-choice part of the argument. There's some astonishing statistics churn coming out of Ohio about liberal turnout. So last year in the 2022 midterms, we had a hugely competitive Senate race between JD Vance and Tim Ryan. We also had a gubernatorial race in that election, and it was in a scheduled midterm year where turnout tends to be higher than these off year elections. Liberal turnout in 2022 in Ohio was 20%. This time, it was 34% of the turnout in Ohio were registered Liberals which for an increasingly red state is quite astonishing and constitutes the highest liberal turnout in Ohio ever recorded since data was began recorded in 1984 so this is one of the biggest motivators of the liberal democratic side that you can experience in these kind of states it's it's even more motivating for people than being able to send another senator to congress and i think that is that is really the story we should be talking about here.
1: But I also think as well is that, particularly in these rate states, a lot of the pro-choice side were quite clever in terms of the Constitutional Amendment, because the constitution Amendment, Sam, is only protecting the right of abortion up to the point of fetal viability, which is only about 20 weeks. So technically, whilst it's a constitutional right, there are also restrictions placed on it. And I think that they made it a bit more palatable to a socially conservative state as well. So... They didn't push the baby the, the bath the baby and the bathwater out completely in terms of how far they were pushing it. They were realistic about the amendment they were proposing. I think that helps in red states so though, doesn't it?
0: I think it does, and I think they did try quite intelligently to sort of articulate that and make it not seem like it was going too far, but I still think that it it does show that the opinion polling pre-Dobbs v. Jackson about where the support for abortion rights lay seems to now be repeatedly evidenced at the ballots when this
1: question is directly put to people. The one thing I'm curious about is and I we we we, we mentioned at the start we won't talk about the Republican presidential election uh primary that's going on, but it's interesting to see how some of the candidates are approaching this issue, isn't it? you have the likes of Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis who have, who have remained staunchly pro-life and I probably won't deviate from that position. But from a Republican party that I think pre-Dobbs v. Jackson was almost unified in a pro-life position, you are seeing that message splinter a bit because it's certainly not a message Donald Trump nor Nikki Haley, arguably two of the front runners, are taking, isn't it? Because, you know, Nikki Haley, I think very striking debate says that, you know, that she's realistic about the fact she won't be able to get an abortion ban from mm-hmm. Congress, mm-hmm. and isn't it?
0: That's the same thing that Donald Trump is saying in a in a roundabout way typical of Donald Trump's meandering sentences, but he he's basically trying to articulate that that is not going to be feasible, um, but it's just about winning the argument on a state- by state basis when these kind of ballot measures come up, which I think is a remarkably sensible thing for Donald Trump to be saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, he described the Ohio ban as going, quote, too far and a terrible thing and a terrible mistake, which is something which I think, considering his position on abortion leading up to the 2020 presidential election, that does represent a policy shift. So it's interesting to see how that's impacted the presidential primary.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think it's not the end of the story on the abortion issue because Glenn Youngkin arguably failed to win his
1: much... Desired trifecta because of his position on abortion. You're right. And not only did Glenn Youngkin fail to get the trifecta he did, he actually did worse. So let me just read out the results. So there were midterm elections in both New Jersey and Virginia. New Jersey, of course, at the presidential election is a blue state, although a lot more red down the ballot. Virginia, of course, is a fast trending blue state. But similarly, I will argue a purple state down ballot as well. So in Virginia, what happened is that before heading to the set of elections, the Democrats uh, controlled the state Senate, but the Republicans controlled the state House. Well, what happened is that the Democrats recaptured control of the House of Delegates, winning 53 seats to the Republicans 49. So that's a gain of three seats and retain control of the Senate with 21 seats, minus three, to so the Republicans are 19 seats plus three. There were some uh, vacancies as well. So that means Glenn Youngkin is now facing probably the worst of the divided government. He doesn't even have a chamber that the Republicans control. And in New Jersey, the Democrats expanded the majority in the General Assembly with 51 seats up five and maintained the 25 seats in the 40 seat Senate. And it's interesting to me, uh, we'll be talking a lot about Virginia, but just in co- just something that's interesting to note in New Jersey is uh, the fact that um, New Jersey, where did the Democrats make gains? South Jersey, the ancestral home of Democrats there, working class, more working class Democrats. So it seems that a common theme, we saw this in Kentucky, we saw this to a less extent in Ohio, we saw this in New Jersey, Sam, is that in, in these off-year elections, Maybe because turnouts a bit lower, Democrats still have some basis of support, though isn't it yeah, um and
0: it it is interesting, I think to specifically on the Virginia case is because of where Virginia's cycle falls in always having its gubernatorial race the year after a presidential election. If a Democrat president is elected in that presidential election, quite typically, the Democratic candidate for governor does badly the year after because it tends to be a sort of punishment, especially against Democratic presidents with lower approval ratings. And that's exactly what happened to Joe Biden in the case of Terry McAuliffe. So I think that's an important asterisk here as well. So Glenn Youngkin not being able to replicate his success on the state legislative level in a state that's increasingly Democrat on both the presidential and statewide level is not hugely surprising. But I think Glenn Youngkin was really expecting to do well here. He was, project- he was talking time and time again about how he wouldn't make a decision on his presidential ambitions until after the Virginia election, because I think he was expecting to do a run DeSantis, pull off a really phenomenal Republican result in Virginia and ride that wave into a presidential primary if things turn south with Donald Trump. I don't think that's going to be happening anymore. Um, and it is is—it is quite interesting that we've talked about the abortion issue a lot today, but I think it's, it is one of the key themes of this electoral cycle because Glenn Youngkin was running pretty explicitly on the prospect of using a trifecta to put in place a 15-week ban on abortion. And what happened in as a result, the Democrats juiced their own turnout and not only defended the Senate but took the House of Delegates as well. So I think it's yet another example of the Democrats using
1: that issue against pro-life
0: Republicans.
1: Well, I can tell you that he has already said he's not going to run for the presidency, which I think is a direct consequence of his failure. Really, that's such a surprise. Yeah, I know. I I totally didn't expect that whatsoever. So yes, I, but at the same time, though, let me just say this. I would say that looking at a lot of these results is that the Democrats could have done a lot better than they did, actually. Whilst the headline results that they took control back of the House of Delegates and kept control of the Senate in some double-digit Biden races. In fact, I was going to say that Republicans, if you were in a Biden plus eight district, all the districts below that, the Republicans held. So there is still quite this residual strength for the Republicans, the Virginian Republicans' down ballot that the presidential election might have gotten away from them, but suddenly in these state legislative races, be it still the Republican DNA in Virginia, which until 2008 was a repub- reliably Republican state, or Glenn Youngkin's own efforts, yes, the headline result was bad, but dig a little bit deeper. They did overperform what was the state's Expected the partisan liens so i mm. think that's worth mm. mentioning
0: oh i think that's completely fair as well and chern i wanted to quickly talk as well about these kind of themes that we've talked about throughout these off-year elections to what extent do we expect them to carry into 2024 because the case of andy pashir is quite unique because there is no way that joe biden is going to get the electoral votes from kentucky um they're, and it's pretty likely, conversely, that Virginia is not going to be particularly competitive. So to what extent do you think we can
1: read anything from this into 2024? Here's one thing as we talk about Kentucky, Sand I've been thinking for a while. Do you think a Democrat other than the name Bashir can win in the modern era?
0: It would be tricky. I think it would take a very unique candidate, a, a candidate a bit like John Bell Edwards was for Louisiana. I think it would have to be that kind of character who sort of is a A dino, if you want to coin that phrase, the Democrat in name only um, candidate who sort of sympathises with those Deep South issues on the Republican side whilst having a Democratic label. And there's few and far between of those candidates even remaining at all in America. I think John Bell Edwards was sort of one of the last of that kind, but I
1: think it would take that kind of person. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that, that was the first point is that I think for the Democrats, Andy Bashir's re-election proves that, you know, we often talk about Southern Democrats being a dying breed. And to a large extent, they are dying breed, You know, they only win usually now in very heavily black areas in the deep south. But it does prove that in non-federal races, I still think that there is a pulse to Southern Democrats. Andy Bashir proved it, really. But Adi Bashir was unique, and this is the point I'm trying to hint at, because I looked at the races for Attorney General in Kentucky, Agricultural Commissioner, Auditor, Secretary of State, and Treasurer, and the Republicans all won between 57%, which is the lowest for Treasurer, and the Auditor won 60.7%. So quite a narrow band where all of them operated in, and that shows the state's traditional lean. So it has to be a special Democrat. So I think that's the first point to be made. Southern Democrats whilst a dying breed, there is still a playbook still in this hyper-polarized era to win non-federal races. I think that's the first thing to say. The second thing I would like to say is that, particularly for the Democrats, is you need to keep Black voters engaged. We saw one example where they didn't keep Black voters engaged, and the impact of that was seen in Louisiana, where the result was a Democratic blowout and a Republican landslide. On the other hand, in Mississippi, they did keep Black voters engaged, and what we did see in that case is that at the governor level, the the, the Democrats did incredibly well, you could say, considering the circumstances, because the, the Tate Reeves won by a smaller margin than Andy Bashir did in Kentucky, which is something I don't think a lot of people were predicting at the start of the day. And That is because Brandon Priestley appealed to a lot of Black voters, and we see this as well, because look down ballot. Down ballot, Republicans won by, at the lowest, the Agriculture and Commerce Commissioner won 58%, and at the highest, it won 61%. So Tate significantly underperformed the Republican ticket, as did Daniel Cameron. Um, And both of this was because Brandon, and particularly Mississippi's case, was that Brandon Presley was able to tap into that Black vote successfully. So I think, the Democrats, I think those are the two takeaways for that on the Democratic side. And on the abortion issue, that is obviously still going to be significant advantage for Democrats in red states. But I do wonder, Sam, with this amount of vote splitting, we see this in vote at the gubernatorial races. Do you think that will actually help Democrats in the presidential race? Because voters can tell the difference, though, isn't it? To a large extent, still.
0: Yeah, and we've got to remember that presidential cycles are much higher turnout environments. So what you might have seen in these kind of elections, particularly in Ohio was one example, is that turnout is down quite significantly, but has held more firm on the Democratic side. But in a presidential election, you'd sort of expect turnout on all sides to be back up. So it's a much different electorate that you're playing with and a much different energy that you're playing with. So I think... You can't particularly rely on single issues juicing turnouts because you're going to have people generally more engaged in a presidential cycle than you would in these off years. So that's a big asterisk. But, Chen, the reason I was asking this question is because, aside from the presidential election next year, we obviously have the congressional elections as well. And there are two cases, I think, of Senate elections where candidates are going to have to have to combat split ticketing and embrace split ticketing if they are to win, I think two in case are John Tester in Montana and Sherrod Brown in Ohio. So why I was asking these questions is, do you think that those candidates could tap into anything that's gone on in this cycle to combat an environment where their states are going to be voting for a Republican nominee for President?
1: Well, the abortion issue has been taken out the table in both these states, really, because of the fact that really, you know, in Ohio's case, it will be enshrined there. But I think they will be relying on their personal brand, that populist working-class Democrat in in Sherrod Brown is a good fit. You know, anti-free trade agreements is a good fit for Ohio. He won in 2018, but it will be difficult. I think a lot of it will be... He's advantaged by the fact I don't think the Republicans are quite settled on the candidate yet. So he has a little bit of time to define the candidate and to store up a huge cash on hand advantage. And I wonder if Joe Manchin, let's be honest, was always going to lose West Virginia, I think, even regardless of whether he did run. But now the fact that he is retiring from the Senate, I think a lot of resources can now be even more Democratic resources, can be focused on trying to save John Tester and Sherrod Brown. Because the understanding is that you lose one, you lose the control of the Senate. So it will be down to these two individuals. And John Tester, well, he's John Tester, that farmer appeal, you know, works in Montana as well. And I think, and it'll be interesting to see. And the advantage is that Ohio and Montana are not double digit Trump states. They're kind of like single digit Trump states, unlike West Virginia, which was by far a double digit Trump state. So I think there is a chance. But. I failed to see one issue. So I think it'll be a lot to do with the, their, their own personal, personality, personal ID to bring them across the line, which might work in this cycle, but we cannot carry that on forever, Sam. And we also saw Steve Bullock as well, in particular Montana, is the story as well, because don't forget, he was the governor there. Montana likes governors in presidential election cycles. He won in 2016, in 2012 and 2016, despite Trump winning in and the Republicans winning in both cases. But yet, when he ran for the Senate in 2020, he failed to get the Senate seat there. So that could be the warning sign that even in these states, the crossover appeal in such a hyper-presidential election will be very difficult.
0: Well, we'll be talking about the US quite a lot, I think, next year, Chad. But we have, as you hinted at the start been talking about the US quite a lot this year, even if it's not always on the podcast. So that's why we came up with this idea for this little quiz, and we're going to do the same when we do our UK review in a few weeks time. But Chen, how do you want to do this? Shall we ask one in turn? Shall we ask all three of ours?
1: How do you want to do it? Now, before anyone claims, Sam and I have genuinely not seen each other's questions. I think hand on heart, we've not seen each other's questions. We will see, uh... and if we both get them all wrong, I'll edit this section out of the podcast <laughs> entirely. <laughs> we shall see, but um, shall we do one each now? The, the rule is that it had to be like about elections in twenty twenty three. So, um, le- I'll start. Um, all right. First question is on um, uh, Kentucky. Actually, so true or false? Andy Bashir won more counties in twenty twenty three than in twenty nineteen, and and the question is. And the second part is how many counties did he win? So, I, I this is true
0: because he picked up seven counties and lost two. So, he gained five more counties, but I don't know how many counties he won overall. Is that good enough?
1: Well, I suppose you have a point. Well, I cheated for two questions there, but um, there are 120 counties in Kentucky. If you could guess a range, how much? How many counties did he okay, win? Okay,
0: I'm going to say... <laughs> 48.
1: Uh he won 29 counties so a okay. little bit off there but uh, <laughs> you're right he did win more uh, uh he did win more counties in 2023 than in 20 uh 2019. All right your your question Sam. Okay. My first question for you Chen, is what was the name of
0: the person who won at the Wisconsin State Supreme Court election by 11 points back
1: in April? Uh Janet Prosewitz. Ding ding ding. Well done.
0: And right, you should be glad,
1: one. and you should be glad that I, I remember how to pronounce her name because I remember <laughs> I had a problem there in April, right? Next question is it true or false. I only one question this time round. Okay, yeah. Um, true or false? Brandon Priestley was born where Elvis Presley was still alive. I think that must be true. Well, Brandon Pres- Presley was born on July the twenty first, nineteen seventy seven, and Elvis Presley died on august the 16th 1977 so he was so, so just, just. <laughs> so it is true um but i thought that was amazing wasn't it sam it is it is yeah i wow. have to con i had to confess all this week um i i, I have played a little more conversation a little less conversation a little more action please have been running through <laughs> my head so your your next so, question
0: my next question for you is Back in August, there were eight candidates on the first Republican primary debate. Oh. Can you name all eight
1: of them? Mike Pence, because he's no longer... Yep. The, but Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Vivek yep. yep. uh Ron DeSantis, uh, Chris yep. Christie. Yep. Was Doug Burgum there as well? He was. So I left two. Um is uh did asia Hutchinson make it i can't remember he did there's seven he did. who is the eighth um can i use a phone of friend i mean i did get seven well i can
0: give you a clue if you want a clue all right this this candidate is still in the debates and tim wanted scott to make it very clear this week that he had a girlfriend tim
1: scott sorry i I, scott. I said it I, I said it midway through the answer, if anyone wanted to say okay. um, <laughs> it. It just occurred to me, who did I miss out? But um, Well done. And, and and on a politics point as well, is that I wonder if Nikki Haley's message and what part of the reason of her rise is that Sunny on the abortion issue, she's the only woman yeah. in there. So she would stick out on this abortion issue, isn't it? Where she articulates and she plays on that quite a and lot as well.
0: And, her, and, her and to be honest,
1: experience. Sam, which has proven to be invaluable over the last couple of weeks, isn't it? Hmm. So Chen, to all, to all, um, we kind of chickened out on one question. So um, <laughs> I, I, I think, I think we are quite fair. But um, all right, final question for you, Sam. In February twenty twenty three, Chicago elected a new mayor. What was the name of the mayor?
0: Oh. <laughs> I honestly can't remember because the only name that's coming to my head is Lori Lightfoot, who spectacularly failed to be re-elected as Chicago mayor. So, I don't know.
1: I don't know. Brandon Johnson, if that is a name oh, that brings my memory. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Paul, uh, it shows you, isn't it? A lot of politics has happened. But yes, the Chicago mayoral election was took place on February... The, the, the runoff took place on April the 4th, so it's actually around the same time as... The Wisconsin Supreme Court race. But I think yeah, the Wisconsin yeah. Supreme Court race just took out all the oxygen, isn't it? So,
0: chair, my final question for you, which I think you're going to get and then you're going to win 3-2, is Diane Feinstein died in September, the longest tenured female senator. What is the name of the person who was appointed by Gavin Newsom to serve out the rest of the term?
1: Oh, my God.
0: And for listeners, because this is a podcast, not a video, Chen just put his head yeah, in his I hands I know
1: the, the the thing is, is that I know what a previous job is like. I know she's president of Emily's list. But it's one of those where like, oh okay. Her last name is Butler. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I know that her first name is L. It begins with an L. That's what I can tell you. Okay, that's half a point. You're telling me lots
0: of things you do know, but
1: um, it is. You it like does begin with you? L,
0: right? I'm, I'm not. It does begin with an L, yeah. I think you've got close enough. I'm going to give you half a point, and I'll tell you her first name. Okay. Well, well, and to
1: be honest, I don't think I could pronounce it anyway because if, if I, it's Lafonsa Butler. Yeah, I was never going to get that in a million years. So, I mean well you win two and a half two two. after two (laughs) but that was quite fun and i think on the basis of (laughs) that well we 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 got some right so we don't have to edit it out but um i good question sam particularly that last one it did trip me out we both fell at the final (laughs) hurdle isn't it to various extent exactly exactly
0: but a nice bit of fun and i help to get revenge when we do our uk quiz in a few weeks time. well l-
1: let me just say that as someone who is actually doing this podcast from london versus someone who's here on this side of the world frankly you know just saying i'm going to see underdog here <laughs> but uh but that is for next time though isn't it and um sam i gave my takeaways about the black vote uh, for the democrats I would say money is also still, I think, a big factor that will ex- explain, particularly these off-year races um, and 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 where the Democrats go to next. Um, what are your takeaways from these sets of elections, Sam, to end off? I think my main
0: takeaway is that um, pro-choice positions still are a bit of a driver of democratic turnout. And I think one of the lessons the Democrats could take away going into the 2024 cycle is, yes, you're operating in a presidential election cycle where turnout is much higher. But one of the things that propelled Joe Biden to the presidency in 2020 was an exceptionally motivated Democratic turnout in opposition to a Donald Trump re-election. I don't know if the Donald Trump issue is going to be as big of a motivator this time around alone, but potentially if the Democrats were to, to... lean into both the trump issue and the abortion issue as we saw now in the 2022 midterms as well and again in 2023 potentially that is the key to overcoming joe biden's low approval ratings and i just wonder if even if Don, even if joe biden would go on to lose but the turnout was higher that that energy might save the democrats on the congressional side so I think there's a lot to be locked into because we've now had quite a number of cycles in a row where a dob a position of some description that's pro-choice on Dobbs v. Jackson has been a turnout motivator for Democrats. So that could be one of the lessons they need to learn heading into a very contentious 2024 cycle.
1: Well, if we thought the 2023 cycle had ups and downs, get ready for the roller coaster 2024, isn't it, Sam?
0: Yeah, I mean, we're in the middle of the first court case of four leading up to this election for Donald Trump. Um, so I really think if you think we've talked a, bit, a lot about the U.S. now,
1: yeah, just wait. And on that note, that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again in two weeks' time, so there'll be no podcast next week, in two weeks' time when we're reviewing the Dutch general election results and the second round of the presidential election results in Argentina. And as always, we'll continue to keep you up to date on the world of politics and elections from around the world. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Ballot underscore Tour. And please do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. You can also email any feedback or comments about ballot to talk about at gmail.com. My name is Chen Han and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.